Welcome back to the second half of Just for the Health of It. Uh, I'm Janet Jacks, your host, and uh, with us for this segment, we have Dr. Alan Logan. He's a naturopathic doctor um, who graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine. Um, His focus has been on nutrition, microbiota, natural environments. Also, uh, he uh, does a lot of research and writing, um, and I love to uh, tap his brain about the latest research. He always uh, has a finger on that. And he's particularly been interested in how all of these things relate to mental health. Uh, He has authored many books, and the most recent, he's the co-author of The Secret Life of Your Microbiome, which has just been uh, released. So welcome to you, Dr. Logan. Well, thanks very much for having me, Janet. It's great to be back chatting with you. Great to be having you here. Many years ago, I think you were one of the first people to hypothesize that there just might be a connection between our microbiome, that is our gut flora, that is the good bacteria in our intestinal tract, uh, and mood. And that was a startling thought back when you first thought it. Well, it was was certainly startling, and uh, myself and Martin Katzman is a psychiatrist in uh, Toronto, um, were <laughs> literally laughed out of the room uh, when we made the suggestion. So we took to the pages of Medical Hypothesis and sort of wrote it up from a scientific framework. I mean, the idea that beneficial microbes or probiotics might influence mood is not ours. We were able to collect some historical notes on this, and it dates back certainly to the time of Metchnikoff at the turn of the you know in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. But what happened? Uh, and what was different about our own thinking was that there were a few things happening around us that would justify at least the thinking that this might be the case. And, you know, to keep this really succinct, one of them was that when a tiny amount of bacterial, what's called endotoxin, gets into the bloodstream, I mean, minuscule amounts, uh, that it could compromise mood, uh, lead to fatigue, you know, cognitive uh, brain fog, if you will, less sharpness, and so on. And this was proven in a, in, in a wonderful study in the archives of general psychiatry. It was the first of its kind. And the inference was that if any of this tiny amount of endotoxin got through the gut lining and into the bloodstream, that that would be the consequence. Mm-hmm. And that was number one. And then the second main part uh, of the idea was that researchers at the time had showed that a tiny amount, a minuscule amount of the harmful bacteria, the kind that would cause, cause food poisoning if your neighbor you know, uh, had left out the, the egg salad too long, uh, called Campylobacter jejuni or C. jejuni, that very minuscule amounts of this microbe when orally ingested in animals, even though it didn't have a massive immune effect at all, it was stimulating the limbic system or the emotional centers of the brain. And you can easily then conclude that maybe beneficial microbes might be doing the same thing. Mm. And that was, you know, going back now 15, 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. And amazing scientists have, you know, explored this in various pathways, including folks from down the street where you're at, <laughs> the scientists at McMaster University. Exactly. Yes, lots of discoveries and and very exciting discoveries they are and many things are validating that first hypothesis where, you know, we saw that there's many ways that these um, things can affect 
us, not just immunity, but many, many other ways. And the the research just keeps uh, unfolding, and we realize that this is a much bigger um, area to study than we ever dreamed. Yeah, it really is. I mean, hardly a week goes by when there isn't more jaw-dropping research. And, you know, I think we do need to kind of keep a lid on some of this um, in terms of, you know, being cautious, not to be over-enthusiastic, especially about the mental health realm. You know, because, again, we need to remind the listeners that depression is a life-threatening illness. And, you know, there are headlines out there, such as psychobiotics, uh, you know, are the future of psychiatry. That will, may well be the case, but that's not where we're at today in the mm-hmm. here and now. So it's no. exciting to watch this, but mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, we need to make sure there's a distinction drawn between, you know, a mild upper respiratory tract infection and common colds where probiotics have been proven to provide tremendous value. In fact, uh, Gregor Reed, uh, who's an amazing Canadian researcher and scientist in the field of probiotics, has shown just how much money could be saved by Canadians, millions of dollars if probiotics were more widespread in their consumption for upper respiratory tract infections. But mm-hmm. that's distinct from, you know, from major depressive disorders. We have to be really cautious with, uh, you know, maybe pumping the brakes a little bit on, you know, we're, it's uh, exciting, but we're just not yes. there yet. I'm not expecting them to do more than they can do at the moment, but even seeing the connection adds promise to what will come in the future. Yeah. Yes, exactly, yeah. Janet. And that's, that's, you know, that's the thing. And again, the collateral health benefits, you know, for general health are many. So again, you know, the justification to take probiotics for a variety of reasons is in place. Uh, that's for sure. And it's just so exciting to see a transformation in the way we view uh, health and well-being. Mm-hmm, for sure. Now, let's explore what is going wrong to damage our microbiome, and which, by the way, is being called an organ, a new organ that's old. It's been there a long time, but newly understood as an organ because of all of its functions. Um, what, um, what we call, uh, when, when it's not as healthy as it should be, we call this dysbiosis. And what are some of the things that can disrupt the, the microbiome. So I know if I asked most anybody that, the first thing they would say is antibiotics. And I think that um, most people are aware that they have a downside and people are trying to use fewer antibiotics, but there are many more things that create dysbiosis as well. So what might some of those be? Yeah, you're right, Janet. I mean, there's just uh, an ever-growing list of the forces of dysbiosis uh, especially in, in westernized culture. And in recent years now, not all these studies have been in humans, but uh, between animal studies and human studies, we know that synthetic emulsifiers that find their way into our baked goods, artificial sweeteners, phthalates and bisphenols, the, the plastic type of material that seeps into our food supply, especially fast foods, uh, airborne pollutants, and I underscore the word airborne there, so airborne particulate matter, influencing in a negative way, gut microbiota. Pesticide residue uh, has also recently been linked with microbial dysbiosis. So you start to see that it's not just the major. So for example, the Western dietary pattern, heavy in sugar as it is, that has been shown in umpteen studies to cause dysbiosis. Um, But also things like tobacco smoke, excess alcohol, stress itself, psychological stress, 
uh, as well as you know heat stress um, have also been linked. And then you have the factors that are detrimental in their absence. So you start to see research on lack of vitamin D, lack of the omega-3 fatty acids, lack of magnesium, lack of the phytochemicals, which you have been a tremendous educator on, those colorful uh, pigments that give plant foods their taste and their texture and obviously their color as well. If you don't have enough of those, that's a detrimental force. So there's really two things at play, Janet. You've got these forces that are causing, uh, you know, an erosion of what once was in terms of microbial diversity, and then it's the absence of other nutrients, uh, you know, that are at play as well. So, again, there's a whole lot of forces. We can add to that sleep disruptions, circadian disruptions, sedentary behavior, not enough exercise. These as well have been linked to dysbiosis. Mm -hmm. So we have lots of reasons with, you know, very uh, broad sweep why our microbiome might not be as healthy as it was uh, decades or centuries ago. And um, I think the most important question we can ask ourselves now is not not to uh, get depressed <laughs> or down about all the things that are wrong, but how are we going to fix this? Now that we recognize so many things that the microbiome does and so many ways that it is disadvantaged, how are we going to make it healthier and better? Yeah, and it's a great question, and, I, and I, I think the wonderful thing about the microbiome research, uh, as jaw-dropping as it is at times, its remediation is really another and perhaps the most powerful to date way of underscoring just how important lifestyle medicine is. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the, the, to me, that, that's the, the breakthrough of the microbiome is it underscores lifestyle medicine, meaning you know, we talked about physical activity and exercise. We talked about sleep quality and sleep hygiene and so forth, avoiding excess alcohol and tobacco. But in terms of the diet, which is at the core, the microbiome has been shown to be influenced uh, by diet relatively quickly. So that's the good news here. It's quite possible uh, to really help to remediate a disturbed microbiome through dietary approaches, things that you have been educating on for many years. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's really trying to color the diet as best as possible, increase the fiber intake as much as possible. Don't forget about those omega-3s that we talked about, the essential fatty acids, and really try to make it as clean as possible and avoiding the synthetics and the emulsifiers that are turning out to be not quite as benign as we've been led to believe. So it is quite possible. You know, uh, Dr. Logan, when I read in your uh, brand new book, The Secret Life of Your Microbiome, uh, that the microbiome was damaged by pesticides. Now, I don't know why, but it just took me by surprise. Oh, I know the pesticides are bad. And I have lots of reasons why I love the fact that I'm able to buy 100% certified organic produce every day all the time because all the people, and goodness me, do all that work to bring it to us. And uh, I'm so grateful. But I had never really thought about pesticides damaging the microbiome. I thought about them being hard on your liver. I thought about them, you know, damaging your DNA, a lot of, a lot of things. I never thought about them damaging your microbiome. And when I read it, that in your book, and you came to that point a few times, it's like, yeah, there's another reason why 
I'm so glad that I can make this choice and I do make this choice. And it's a reminder to all of us that, um, like I say in my book, like food isn't neutral. And every time you eat, you are sending yourself toward health and healing or down the slippery slope. There's no neutral ground. So if you think, well, I'll just have this artificially sweetened soda and it will be fine because there's no calories, you're wrong because the chemicals in there are going to tell your body how to go down the slippery slope. And there's, there's no neutral ground. So I think it's empowering to think about that actually empowering, helping us understand what we have to do. I really appreciate you saying that and underscoring that, uh, that notion. I'm in complete agreement. I think it's really important to highlight, uh, there was a great quote uh, from the 1930s, I believe it was, uh, that I've called out before, but the essence of it was in those early days before we had a complete, uh, you know, colossal force of ultra-processed foods, in westernized society. But even then, as it made its early encroachment, uh, it was stated that, you know, foods are either for you or against you. And that is incredibly true. You just said that very simply, and and that is true. So we can't just think, it, you know, it's neutral. So if we want to fix this, you know, let's first of all remove some of the things that are damaging, and some of them are not so hard to remove as we've thought. Uh, let's remove the chemicals. Let's get rid of the dirty dozen in our diet. Let's cut down and remove the sugar. Uh, let's stop using artificial sweeteners. And, you know, if we have to have something sweet occasionally, okay, have uh, a real, true, like, honey, maple syrup, a little bit, and then leave it. But we've got to make these changes. But as well, there are things we can put in. So... Um, you know, there's lots more information about um, just like vegetables that have what we call prebiotic fibers, fibers that can help grow good bacteria, things like radishes and asparagus, onions, leeks, garlic. So just eating more of those uh, is also just a step in the right direction. And they're colorful, just like you said, having more colorful things, uh, taking in the, um, the plant nutrients, the phytonutrients. Um, it is a really, you know, good thing. Um, and, and with the prebiotics, you want to have some probiotics. And where are we going to get those? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Those are your sort of, you're seeding, you're feeding, you're helping to, you know, remediate essentially what could be viewed at just the way we look at external environments out in, in, in urban environments or in nature that need to be remediated probiotics have their place as well. Many of them do not stay inside the gut. They're transitory. That doesn't mean they don't work. That doesn't mean they're not efficacious. Certainly the research shows that they can be. Uh, and even though their residents, if you will, may be short-lived, they can still have profound effects uh, throughout mm -hmm. the body. And prebiotics as well, of course, you're helping, you know, under new guidelines in June, which is published, you've mentioned some of the most well-known prebiotic uh, fibers that are found in uh, a variety of different foods from the dietary. There's also new research that indicates that those phytochemicals or phytonutrients, as some like to call them, those colorful components uh, that you find in deeply colored, let's say, blueberries and cherries and, and so forth, 
they actually help to promote the growth of good bacteria as well, according to uh, a number of, of new studies. And in turn, there also appears to be greater uptake and delivery to the target tissue of those polyphenols in the phytochemicals. That's the amazing story here, is that there's a two-way street, a relationship between the colorful things that you know have been labeled as antioxidants, a term that I think is actually uh, derogatory in a sense, because there's so much more to phytochemicals or phytonutrients, polyphenols, than simply being an antioxidant. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, um, we, we hear a lot about fermented foods, and and I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm a good consumer of fermented foods. But um, you know, a, a couple of months ago, I decided, you know what, I'm going to make this like a really important thing every every day for sure, and maybe maybe several times a day to consume these. And there are so many different ones, and uh, and it's become a real habit. So here's another thing. So. Uh, give us an example of how fermenting can help enhance our microbiome, our absorbability. Um, for example, uh, very lots of people want to consume vegan proteins um, these days because vegans have realized, oh, we don't have enough protein, but there can be an issue with absorbing it. So how does fermentation help? Well, fermentation is really uh, so, so transformative for many Foods, including, as you mentioned, the plant protein sources. And you think about beans and legumes. Um, research shows that you can, through fermentation, you can increase the what's called the protein efficiency ratio or the ability of the content within that protein source to allow a living creature to thrive and grow is increased by up to 40% through the act of fermentation. Because what you're doing is, I mean, think about what it would be like to eat a bowl of raw beans. Right, that wouldn't really be good for anybody, no, including the consumer. Mm-hmm. Fermentation breaks down the, if you will, the wire mesh that sits around uh, beans and legumes and, and, and anti nutrients in the forms of, of lignans and tannins and phytic acid. Helps to break it down. They like it; it's food for them, and it leads to, uh, you know, a, in essence, a pre-digested protein source. You know, human beings have been using fermentation to enhance nutritional quality since time immemorial. Mm-hmm. And Gregor Reed, who I mentioned before, the, the Canadian expert scientist in probiotics, is actually arguing and advocating with Health Canada to include fermented foods as a bona fide section of the food guide. I hear that that just might happen, and I'm really happy to hear that, um, that it might be its own food category when the the new guide comes out next year. Um, Let's go back to probiotics. You mentioned them. So we've got our prebiotic fibers. We've got our fermented foods of all different kinds, and we have our probiotics. So uh, how can we tell if it's a good probiotic? Well, the first, I mean, probiotics... Sadly, it is a little bit of a, of a wild west still, um, although it's getting far and away better now uh, compared to, I mean, you, you could speak to this better than me. I mean, you're sort of the industry expert, and I'm sure you've seen far and away better products today than, let's say, 20 years ago. Probiotic, it, the definition should really reflect the actual product at hand. It's defined as live microorganisms that confer benefit to the host when consumed in adequate amounts. 
So there's a few things you've got to pull out there. They have to be living, and you have to take enough of them, and they have to have some sort of benefit. So you want to make sure that you've got, you know, a good variety. In my opinion, uh, you need a variety of different strains. Some of the best probiotics are single identified strains that have been shown to do wonderful things. But there is also research in favor of a collective of a variety of different microorganisms. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure that they have been packaged properly. Mm -hmm. or Are they going to survive stomach acid? You know, that's where having a, a you know, various coatings or, you know, uh, targeted delivery can really help with that, bringing mm-hmm. them to, to the small intestine and bypassing stomach acid. Are they room temperature stable? You know, mm-hmm. and if so, I, I, Genuine Health uh, has put theirs into a blister packs, uh, which I like. There's no refrigeration necessary with those ones and are portable, be thrown into a backpack and so forth. But are they hardy and are they living and thriving for the consumer and do you get enough of them? These are some of the things that are really important considerations mm-hmm. in, in the probiotic marketplace. Mm-hmm. And when you put more strains together, I guess there's synergy there that's really important. Yeah, well, again, you see studies that indicate really well-known and well-described probiotic strains individually uh, can do wonderful things, and the evidence, if there, supports their use. But there's also, you know, there was a review on this recently, and in about two-thirds of the cases, the multi-strain uh, blends did really well. So you can argue it both ways. I think if you take a, a specific strain that you may have on the shelf already um, that has evidence to support it, well, it justifies the use of that particular strain for the given outcome at hand. But again, you can also make the argument based on separate research that blends of different bifidobacterium, lactobacilli, and lactococcus all have benefit in the general realm, right? So for daily use, if you will. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you helped to formulate uh, a new fermented gut superfood. Um, what's the purpose of this? Right. And just to be clear, I make no money from this. I have been a longtime consultant, you know, with Genuine Health, and I always like to put out that disclosure mm-hmm. out there. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's not my product per se, but yes, you know, I, I certainly, you know, helped along the way with their team, and it's really remarkable. I like it because it is a, a food. It's, it's, I think, their first effort at moving away from the natural health product realm in this one particular case and taking 21 different foods essentially with the water removed and it's fermented. So you're taking, you know, a blend of different foods in fermented form. And again, it's really rich in those polyphenols, which we talked about before. And the act of fermentation creates brand new phytochemicals that may be, uh, delivered to the target tissue more efficiently. So I like the idea that you've, you're taking this sort of food-based approach. Uh, and there's also five grams of fermented fiber in there. And again, mm-hmm. you've already touched on the fact of these prebiotic fibers. And certainly, it's very easy to argue that North Americans are not taking nearly enough uh, fiber in. That's true. Fermented fiber. That's true. And these fibers, yeah, they become fuel for your, your good bacteria and help fuel the microbiome. And, and uh, your new book, The Secret Life of Your Microbiome, I was thinking how you've written many books, Your Brain on Nature, um, Clear Skin Diet, The Brain Diet. It's sort of 
all coming back around again in the secret life of your microbiome as we understand uh, you've got so much, especially new research in here, uh, revealing different aspects of the microbiome and the ways that we can fuel it. Uh, I feel like everything you've written in the past has sort of come together to help make this book what it is and all the new research on top of it. Well, I really appreciate that, uh, that that compliment, and you know, it's it's wonderful at this particular time to to survey the landscape and just see how the microbiome uh, research is just connecting so many different seemingly disconnected areas of research. So it's just it's bursting down all the silos and really showing that personal health, public health, and planetary health are all connected on a line. And to me, the secret life of your microbiome is, is far, its subtitle about nature and biodiversity really is the book. I think we are standing in critical times right now where if the microbiome research is to be leveraged for anything, it should be leveraged to underscore the interconnectivity of all species and the dependence upon human beings for diversity, biodiversity, diversity of life on this planet. And you can take that scale from the tiniest tip of your intestinal tract all the way out, you know, to the planet itself and everything in between. We've got mm. some serious well questions. Said. Yeah, well said. Serious questions asked, uh, lots of answers beginning to be given. Thank you for writing it, and thank you for sharing your passion and your knowledge. Um, we'll have to leave it there. Our time is up. But I want to say uh, thank you, Dr. Alan Logan, for the books you've written, the research you've done, uh, the questions that you've asked, and the way you've forged ahead with um, with what has helped to pave a, uh, a whole new way of thinking about our health. So thank you for that. Thank you. All right. And today, goodness me, come on in. and um, and. Uh, check out Dr. Alan Logan's new book, The Secret Life of Your Microbiome, and also ask about uh, Genuine Health's fermented uh, vegan protein and their advanced gut health probiotics with uh, carefully selected strains, shelf-stable, and watch out for the new gut superfood blend. So check it out and bring in your questions. I know you're going to find lots of healthy answers. And remember, power to change your health. It's in your hands, and the time to do it is now. Have a great week.